Morning, welcome. It's really lovely to see you all here today to celebrate this special occasion. You know, I love to see people being baptised, so this morning is really exciting for me. And I hope that all of you have sensed something of that um, uh, excitement and celebration also this morning. But it has to be said that what we've witnessed here this morning is at the very least just a little bit strange. We've watched someone climb into something that looks a lot like a birthing pool, fully dressed, and then let themselves be pushed down under the water. And then they're lifted back up again to shouts and claps and cheers. What's all that about? Why do we do it? And why do we get so excited about it? Well, at one, answer, at one level, the reason as to why we do it is quite simple. We do it because Jesus told us that we should. And did you know there are just two rituals that Jesus instructed his followers to do? One is communion, which um, we aren't going to talk about today, and one is baptism, which we will. So for the new Christian, baptism is the first step of obedience um, to their new leader. So that's the easy answer as to why we baptize. But of course, it doesn't answer the question as to why Jesus thought it was so important that he made this just one of the only two rituals that he instituted. What I want to try and show you this morning is that what we've just seen and what we're going to see again later is actually a graphic representation of something amazing. Something that takes us to the very heart of Christianity and even to the very meaning of life itself. So we're going to start by recapping a bit of what we've actually seen today. Well, we've heard Chippo tell us a bit of a story, a story about a significant turning point in her life. And then we've heard her pledge her commitment to Jesus. And then she got in the water and she knelt down. Well, that's just because we've only got a small pool and we didn't want her to bang her head. So it's important but not deeply significant. But then she let other people push her under the water, and that is significant. Chippo didn't just get into the pool and dip herself under. Someone else dipped her. And then, and this is very important both for Chippo, but also for the symbolism, she was raised back out of the water again. And again, she didn't do this herself. She was lifted out by somebody else. And then everyone around gets enthusiastic, and there's some tears and some singing and all the rest. So that's what we saw. But what does it mean? Well, Paul, who was one of the early followers of Jesus, tells us something about it in a letter he wrote to the Christians in Rome. He wrote this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You can read that in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. It's just a few sentences, but it's like the TARDIS. When we get inside, we find there's a whole range of truth there. It's a whole new world, and it's something of that world and its story that I want to talk about this morning. But for the moment, I just want to stay with the symbolism of baptism, because what we see in these verses is something of what these symbols portray. So the first part of what we've seen this morning is the representation of a burial. That's why the person doesn't just dip themselves under the water. Because as they're kneeling there, what they're saying is, I'm dead. What you see here is my body. So they can't do anything themselves. They need the person doing the baptism to bury them. That's why we plunge them right under the water. So that person is properly buried. And that's the end of the first act. Scene one of this enactment ends with the person dead and buried. But then we have scene two. 
And for this scene, it's very appropriate, perhaps, that we have something that looks like a birthing pool, because the person is then lifted up out of the water, and that represents new birth, new birth to a completely new life, which is why we celebrate and sing. We're celebrating new life. So there are a couple of things in the symbolism I just want to draw your attention to. One is that having got into the water, the person being baptized is entirely passive. They don't bury themselves but neither do they have any part in raising themselves back up again. Their new life is a gift. And second, it's important to notice that though there's a continuity here, it's the same person that comes back up out of the water as went into the water. There's also a radical discontinuity. The state of the person coming out is completely different to the state of the person going in. They were dead. Now they're alive. The Bible uses various images to describe this change. It talks of going from darkness to light, from being lost to being found, from being um, captive to free, orphan to heir. Something profound has happened, something amazing that is worthy of great celebration. That's what the symbolism of baptism is telling us. And it's what that change actually is that I want to look at now. And what we'll find is that the change that has happened in Chippo that we've heard about already, the change that has happened in Scarlet and Gabriella that we'll hear about later, is just part of an immense story, a story that will continue into the future as far as we can imagine, and a story that started way, way back, right in the beginning, before anything even existed, anything, that is, apart from God. But this wasn't any old God. And it's really important that we're together in understanding something about this God. Because whether this story is hideous or beautiful, terrifying or fantastically comforting, depends entirely on the nature of this God. Because this whole story starts and ends with him. So what can we say about him? Well, this wasn't just some lonely God lost in the immense nothing, aimless and bored. This wasn't some impersonal power or force like you get in Star Wars. This wasn't a brilliant but powerful but isolated intelligence. This was a God that was powerfully and gloriously alive. A God that was a single God, but yet a community of three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each lived to love the others. Theirs was a community of giving, loving, and sharing. God was complete and fully satisfied. And yet, and yet, he was so full of love and life, and so intrinsically generous, that he didn't want to keep all of that goodness to himself. So he came up with an audacious plan. He decided that he would make beings that could share in this community of love and life, beings that could love him and uh, could be loved by him in return, beings that could share with each other and with him the delight and joy that the members of the Godhead already enjoyed with each other. So he decided to create an entire universe, and into this universe he would make a home for these beings, a beautiful earth filled with wonderful things before finally he would make man and put him on the earth. A being made in his own image. A being that would be capable of loving him and enjoying him forever. But I said this was an audacious plan. Why audacious? Well, because it carried with it a huge risk. You see, before God created uh, man, he had a choice. A choice of what sort of relationship this being would be capable of. And each sort of relationship had different risks and rewards. 
See, God could have stopped after creating the animals, and this would have been a low-risk option. In some ways, the world would have been a better place. See, moral animals have no moral sense, so there would have been no wars, no bitterness, no greed, no hatred. And animals are lovely, so I'm told. Some of you, some of you have pets, and you know that they're capable of warmth and devotion and attention. God could have settled for that kind of relationship. But you know that however good the relationship is that you have with your pet, it's never going to have the same depth or quality that you'd have with another human being. And God didn't want to settle for that kind of relationship. The sort of rela- that sort of relationship would never really reflect the kind of relationship that existed between the members of the Godhead. And that was what God was after. So animals were good, but he wanted more. He wanted beings that were much closer to him in terms of their capacities. Moral beings that would be capable of choosing both good and evil. Beings that would be capable of freely choosing to love him. Or equally capable of choosing to reject him. And if that sounds like a recipe for trouble, well it was. So why did he want it? And the answer is simply that it's only when there's this kind of freedom that a relationship becomes truly meaningful. Now imagine this scenario. Imagine that I have a daughter, and I'm upset because she doesn't have any friends. And girls, just for the sake of clarity, this is just an illustration. So I have a cunning plan. I find a girl in her class, and I pay her to befriend my daughter. Every week I pay the check, and every week she does everything that a good friend should do. And this goes on for years. And my daughter is deeply content because she has a good friend. Now imagine that one day she comes across my checkbook stubs and she finds all these checks written to this girl. Or maybe these days it's more likely she'd come across my online bank account, but whatever. And after confronting me, she's suddenly faced with the terrible truth. Do you think it'll matter to her? Does the fact that her friend didn't choose her, but had only been her friend because she was paid by me, does that matter? Is there any chance that that relationship could continue? Well, of course it couldn't. Of course it matters. See, a meaningful, loving relationship can't be bought, or coerced, or forced. For a loving relationship to be truly meaningful, there has to be freedom. Freedom to walk away. Freedom to cause the other person hurt. Because it's in the exercise of the freedom not to walk away. The exercise of the option to do good to the other and not to hurt them. The freedom to choose to be with that person and enjoy their friendship, or not that gives that choice meaning. And God wanted this highest kind of relationship. He wanted the best relationship with his created beings that it was possible to have, but there was a price to pay. Because it meant he had to give these beings the choice and the genuine freedom to turn their back on him, to reject the love that he would give them. And of course he knew that this is exactly what they would do. But he also knew that this wouldn't be the end of the story, because already, he had a plan. He had a plan, and he knew that he would have to, uh, that this plan was going to be difficult and costly, and he knew that he was going to put this plan into action because he knew what man would do with his precious freedom. But he also knew that he so wanted that end result that he was willing to pay the price. And sure enough, man did use the freedom that he had, the freedom that he had to choose God or to reject him, and he used it to reject God. He cut himself off from the very source of his life. And in that moment, he died. Not physically, not straight away, but 
he was cut off from relationship with the God who had made him specifically for the purpose of enjoying relationship with him. So from that moment, his life ceased to function in the way that gave his existence any meaning. And that is the state into which we are all born. The Bible says we are all born enemies of God. We all do the things that we want to do. We serve ourselves. and We even ignore the fact that God exists. But though we fill our lives with activity, and for many of us we have quite reasonable material provision, for those that sometimes give themselves a chance to reflect, there's a nagging question that raises itself above the noise. Is this really all there is? St. Augustine described a restlessness in the heart. C.S. Lewis spoke of a hunger for which no satisfaction can be found. Now, of course, there are hungers we can satisfy. Most of us, most of the time, can satisfy physical hunger. We might hope to satisfy the hunger for human love. We might think that we'll find satisfaction in career success or a job well done. And none of these things are bad, and they might give some degree of satisfaction. But there's always the worry. It's like when you're climbing in the hills, that when you attain what looks like the summit and achieve what you're striving for, there's actually, it might not prove to be the top. You see another one still further ahead. And so you have to keep going. And when we're honest enough to face the truth, we know we'll never really make it. We're just reaching for a mirage, and it's going to just keep slipping beyond our grasp. That is the reality of spiritual death. However hard we try, we can't replace what is missing. And the fact that for most people, most of the time, these desires are weak and easily ignored doesn't mean that they aren't real. And whilst most people, most of the time, can persuade themselves they're okay, or they would be okay if only they could achieve X, Y, and Z, the truth is different. They're not okay. When the Bible says that even as we are born into physical life, we are born into spiritual death, it's saying that spiritually we're in as bad a state as it's possible to be. And this state is separation from the God that made us specifically to be with him. And the bad news is we're in this state because of our own actions and choices. It's our fault. We can't lay the blame anywhere else. And it's not just that we made an innocent mistake. The Bible tells us that we have deliberately broken relationship with God. And the just consequence of that is separation from God forever. And there's more bad news. And that is that we can't do anything to help ourselves. But there is good news. And the good news is this good news that Christians get so excited about. Because as I said earlier, God had a plan. A plan that would allow justice to be done and yet for love to triumph. See, we're told that despite man's rejection of him, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus, who was one of the three persons who is God, came to earth as a man and lived a perfect life. The life that we should have lived. A life of perfect relationship with his father and a life of selfless Um, love and goodness. And then, as you all know, he was executed by the Romans. And there on the cross, he suffered the physical death that we too will all experience. But he also suffered spiritual death. He experienced separation from his father, the separation that was our just punishment. So he bore in himself the punishment that was ours. And the good news is that God has said he will accept the punishment that Jesus bore in our place, in the place of the punishment that we should bear. God couldn't overlook the fact that man had rebelled against him. That wouldn't have been just, and goodness requires justice. 
but he could bear the consequences himself, and that is what he did do. So now there is a way for man to return to God, a way for relationship to be restored. But still God wants that relationship to be freely chosen. So whilst he desires that everyone should return to him, he's still not going to forcibly compel them to do so. The benefit that has been won is conditional, and the condition is simply that we accept it. We have to accept being found and rescued by him. Thank him that he has done it all. He has paid the price and accept the free gift of his forgiveness. So when Paul writes of all who are baptized into Jesus' death, he's talking about all those that have done just this. All those that have appropriated Jesus' death to themselves. All who have said, let your death be my death. All such people are deemed to have died with Christ. And as Jesus was then buried, so in baptism we too are buried. But Jesus didn't stay in the grave. On the third day he rose again. And you'll have noticed that as we baptized Chippo this morning, we didn't leave her under the water. She was lifted up, just as Scarlet and Gabriella will also be. As Paul wrote, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. As we lift the people up out of the water, we're representing the fact that just as Jesus was raised from the dead to newness of life, so too we who have accepted his death on our behalf will be raised to new life. 1 Corinthians 13, another letter written by Paul, we read this. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by, also, by a man also has come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. And it's this new life we celebrate today. That's why we clap and sing and get as excited as our Britishness allows. Because someone who was lost has been found. Someone who was dead is now alive. All those, and, and all those who are baptized this morning, they will die one, again one day, just as we all will. But just as Jesus raised a new life in an imperishable body, so too we will be raised Jesus was just the first, and we will follow. Paul goes on in Corinthians to write, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We will be changed. This perishable body will put on the imperishable, and this mortal body will put on immortality. We will live in a place where there will be no more sickness, no more tears, and most importantly, we'll live in a place where we will see God face to face, able to fully delight in his presence. That is our ultimate hope, and it's a hope which will not disappoint. But it's important to say, too, that that doesn't mean that this flesh is evil. Or this life doesn't matter. But we must see this world and this life in this greater context if we are to make any sense of it. C.S. Lewis spoke of this quite clearly, as he often does. I mentioned earlier he spoke about a hunger in our hearts for which nothing on earth can satisfy. Let me just read you the whole quote. Creatures are not born with desires unless, desires for those, um, unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy, 
The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that this universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, then I need to take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for those earthly blessings. But on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are just a kind of copy, an echo or a mirage. I must keep it alive in myself, the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed down or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life, to press on to that country and help others to do the same. So our story ends, if it can ever be said to end, in that country which we will find after death, where God's desire will at last be fully satisfied to have a people who will be able to share in his love and relationship without obstacle or hindrance. A people who have freely chosen to love him and a people who will be able to enjoy him forever. And that, on the back of a postcard, is the story that we've had illustrated here this morning in baptism. And hopefully it will help you to um, uh, watch the um, baptism of Gabriella and Scarlett in a moment with a bit more understanding. But I know that this has been the briefest of sketches and there's lots of detail missed out. So if you want to know more, please do feel free to come and talk to me or somebody else. And we do run a course here called Christianity Explored, which, as the name kind of suggests, gives you the chance to explore a little bit more and you'd be very welcome to join with us on that. In the meantime, though, I just want you to remember this. God doesn't desire that anyone should perish. He wants to draw everyone back to himself. And that includes each of you. That's why he made you. It was love for you that caused him to give his only son to die in your place. And he's calling you even today. He's calling you to be made whole, to become what you were made to be, a child of God living in restored relationship with him, to have new life now and a glorious hope for the future.